All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we take actual events portrayed in movies of actual anarchy. And by actual anarchy, we mean not the fake-ass anarchy like you're seeing at the Trump inauguration, smashing up a Starbucks window, lighting people on fire, punching Nazis, any of that stuff. My name is Daniel, and with me, as always, is Robert Johnson. How are you doing, Robert? What's up, Genderhammer? I'm doing great. I'm excited for this episode. This is... uh. This is a spicy meatball of a movie we're going to be talking about today. All kinds of uh, shiz going on up in it. Yeah, we might actually need to break this one out into two episodes because we're talking about the movie Captain Fantastic starring Viggo Mortensen that uh, came out about a year ago. And it has so many points to uh, expand upon. But before we get into that, I want to tell you a little bit more about what we do. We run actualanarchy.com, which right now uh, directs to readrothbard.com, which is a site that we run with Murray Rothbard lectures, books, articles, and a podcast uh, that is what we do now, but it used to be called the Read Rothbard Podcast. Going forward, that one will have audiobooks by Murray Rothbard. We also have another podcast called Enemy of the State, and that is lectures actually delivered by Murray Rothbard. And then we have this podcast, the Actual Anarchy Podcast. And like I was saying, if you go to actualanarchy.com, you will end up at readrothbar.com. Eventually, we will populate something at actualanarchy.com, so look out for that. It just takes us a long time to get anything done. I've got two kids. Robert lives out in the mountains or the hills. He's a hill person now. And so it just takes us a while to get get things accomplished around here, but promise I promise we will get it done. And like all our promises, we totally fulfill them. Totally. Well, we've kept one or two. I don't know. Here and there. <laughs> we're we're batting in. We're probably batting around 200. I don't know. That's not the worst. Yeah, we're, we're probably not Mendo- big league numbers, but you know, we might be able to make it in the minors. Well, you've you've heard of the Mendoza line, right? Uh, nope. The Mendoza line is a batting average of about 200. And uh, I forget exactly why it's significant, but apparently uh, if you're batting below the Mendoza line, you're, you're no good. The Mendoza line is like the minimum viable player. And mm. ironically enough, uh, he was a Seattle Mariner for a time. That sounds about right. Long-suffering franchise that uh, Robert and I grew up watching. I mean, we had some great players over the years. I mean... In the late 90s, early 2000s, they are fucking stacked. Yeah, um, you got guys like Edgar, KGJ, Tino. A-Rod. 
A Rod, all those guys. Yeah. We had uh, Randy Johnson, Buner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martinez, you or uh, Tino Martinez, right? He was also and Edgar Martinez. Yeah, both of them. Before they all went to the Yankees. Yeah, I mean they were on paper an amazing team. They just never got anywhere. And it was only after I think Junior and A Rod and Randy Johnson left that they had that 116 win season and were just balls to the wall, amazingly good. And then they crapped out in the playoffs after. Did they beat uh, like the White Sox in round one and then lost? I thought the round one was just against the Yankees and we just got stopped. I don't <laughs> As I recall exactly. on 116. Yeah, I think that was the very first round. Played the Yankees, then we got. I don't know if we got swept, but we got hastily rejected. Was that was that Ichiro's one of Ichiro's first years? I forget. Yeah, I think he won MVP, Rookie of the Year, and was on the 116 win team. He won the batting title, and I think had the most number of steals, and had all these amazing you know center field plays where he throw the guy out at home. And this guy weighed like 150 pounds, and he could rock it the ball all the way from deep center field with accuracy, laser beam style, and get guys out of the plate. Pretty amazing guy. Yeah, he threw that ball on a rope. It was just like there was no arc to it. Just fired out of a gun. I don't know how he had such an arm. Uh, so not to confuse you guys, who may be new listeners, we are not a sports podcast. Uh, we just go off on tangents. That's our thing. We are just two guys having a conversation, talking about anarchy, actual anarchy, varieties of it. We talk about movies. We analyze the plot, the characters, their actions for the morality of it in relation to the non-aggression principle. If there's an instance where there's a lesson from Austrian economics, we'll talk about it. And uh, that's generally what we do. Uh, You want to add anything to that, Robert? Nope. You summed it up nicely. Yeah, so that was one of the feedback uh, things that we got from, from people listening to our previous iteration of the show was that they felt like they were just dropped into a conversation between us guys and uh, they had no idea what what our show was about um, because we we always have to remember that somebody may not start back at episode one i mean we were on episode 40 uh, of the read rothbard podcast and someone may pick it up at any point so we have to in every episode at least mention what it is we do and how we do it in, in a brief you know little deal and then move into the meat of the episode, which we are going to get to now. By the way, click on any Amazon link on readrothbar.com, and we will get a little bit of a commission. Show your support. We've also got a Patreon page, a tip jar page, Liberty Classroom links, readitfor.me links, any of those things. I just had to throw it in in there because uh, any little, you know, comment, promotion, like, share, uh, smoke signal, skywriting helps us keep going. So on with the show, Robert. How are... Let's do this. So Captain Fantastico, uh, starring Vigo Mortensen, um, good old Aragorn himself. Uh, 2016, fairly well reser- uh, reviewed. Uh, it's kind of like an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes, 7.9 IMDb, 94% Google users like it. Um, overall, I'd say it's a fairly well done movie, but oh. Are the devils in the details, and there's all kinds of little issues to talk about here. So, the movie is essentially a kind of um, mm, 
how do you characterize it? Like a a a, 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 a man and a wife, two kind of even though they're it's the wrong age. Like the wife is, she dies when she's like 41. So she was born in 1974, but yet they're very much like a hippie parents. And they decided that they're going to raise their children in the wilds of the Cascade Mountains in Washington State. So you've got this, and when the movie starts, the wife is not to be found, but we see the family kind of living in the, in the nature. And we learn very quickly that the mother is sick and that then she quickly dies. She has committed suicide and the family needs to, they feel like they want to go to her funeral. And the movie is essentially a fish out of water, like road trip movie. You got these kids that have been homeschooled their whole life and they're being exposed to like modern society, modern culture for the first time. And so then there's all those kind of interactions that the movie kind of plays off of. And then there's a conflict with um, the wife's parents who wanted to have like this Christian burial when in fact, according to her will, she was a Buddhist and wanted to be cremated. So the family goes down to basically rescue the body so that they can go burn it and have their own kind of like ceremony according to her wishes and that's essentially the plot of the movie um but man is there all kinds of stuff to get into okay so do you have anything to add before we move on to each individual scene daniel uh nothing in particular but i did notice that there was a lot of contradiction in the movie oh yeah sort of the theme that that i noticed within it and i'm sure that will be many of the talking points that we discussed throughout our show. Right. And I have, you know, generally in a movie, you want your characters to have an arc and you want them to have some sort of a conflict, maybe some sort of either external conflict or an internal conflict, generally an internal conflict, because then that would lead to a change in the character. But the question is, in this movie, is the change believable? Um, And we can get into that, but we will get into that later. So first scene. You're in the wild wilderness of the Washington Cascades, and socialist family Robinson is out on a hunt, camoed up like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator. And the oldest son jumps out of the bushes and gives a straight razor to the throat of a deer who was just passing by minding his own business. Okay? And then the whole family jumps out, and then they celebrate, you know, a successful hunt. They're, they're like and, style. They're all, like, covered in mud. Yeah, they're covered in mud. They got camoed up. They're covered in, like animal skins and whatever. Right. So it's and like they, they're hunting like with just knives. Schwarzenegger um, trying to find the alien and predator. Basically hunting the predator, yeah. Um, and then Viggo Mortensen, whose character name I think is like Ben. Yeah, Ben. He, um, he goes up to the deer and he cuts out the liver or a chunk of the liver and he hands it to his son, his oldest son who, who, who made the kill. And he's like, the boy is dead. In his place is a man. And the the boy starts eating the liver. And then um, they hike the deer back to camp. And then they start, um, you know, preparing it for food. Now, do you have any issues whatsoever at this point? You got a family hunting for their dinner. Um, Any kind of issues arise from just what you've seen so far? 
Uh, the only issue I had was I'm glad that I wasn't watching the movie with my kids because I think it would freak them out that Bambi was getting uh, the throat slit. But, yeah. you know, so far everything's kosher, man. I mean, they're just living a relatively primitive, you know, back-to-the-land lifestyle, which is, right. you know, if, if somebody chooses to do that, so be it. Go for it. Right. He's making the choice. He made the choice with his wife to live out there, and they're raising the children as best they know how, and part of that involves hunting for food. And you could argue that this is a much more humane way of doing, getting food than, you know, factory farming or what have you for the animals we have. But anyway, so they have eaten the food and um, the the girls immediately can't find like the, the paring knife or the boning knife, I think they call it. And so then Viggo Mortensen has to go get it. And it's, the youngest girl has it, and she has this little hut. And so Vigo goes up there, and she has made this altar of dead animal, like bones and skin and feathers. And on the wall of her little teepee, she's got pictures of Pol Pot and skulls. And for this, this uh, was very realistic for me because I know a little girl that is, like, obsessed with death and morbid- morbidity. So that it, it's weird that the father wouldn't say more about it. That hey, Pol Pot. I mean, what is this? All this death and murder and stuff. But to have a, like a little morbid kid is a very real thing. And throughout the movie, she makes comments about the human body and how you would die and <laughs> what a kill Mark is and that sort of thing. Uh, what did you think about that little girl character? Hit a little close to home, Daniel. Uh, are we? Are, do we know the same morbid child? Yes, we do. Okay. Uh, so my daughter does like dead rats, and dead chickens, and things like that. Uh, we speak to her uh, almost as an adult, and I think that that was one of the things that the uh, Vigo Mortensen character does in this movie. And in fact, I think when you were mentioning this movie to me, suggesting it, you were saying. In watching this movie, I thought of you 10 or 15 years in the future because of you know, how you interact with your kids and how you're very blunt with people. But right. also, I imagine, you know, living out of the city and, and trying to acquire skills and all of these things and doing the whole homeschool thing, which will become a very important point later on in this, in this show. Uh, but yeah. yeah, like a more survivalist version of you and your family, that sort of thing. Just with you and like teaching your kids the best you know how and that sort of thing. But go ahead. Yeah, for sure. So it did bother me in the respect that she had this shrine with skulls and, and dead animal parts, but also pictures of Pol Pot and actual human skulls in this little shrine she built. And I was a little confused about whether she was doing it as a fan of Pol Pot and what he had done because there's a contradiction here because even by this point in the film you're kind of aware that the kids are smart and well read like they're they're around campfire reading you know books well beyond their their age level uh in common commonplace right and they're 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 obviously doing an effort to acquire skills and knowledge and not just on a surface level but 
at a deeper level, like analyzing it, synthesizing it, like tell me in your own in your own words what this means and what are the implications of it. And that's what the Vigo uh, character pushes in his kids. You know, don't just recite what it is. Tell me why it's good, why it's bad, what do you think about it in your own words? And so I find that a huge contradiction with the whole idea of Pol Pot, who in Cambodia killed millions and millions of people who were a threat to his imposition of communism if they were intellectual, if they could read, if they wore glasses. And so for some child to be able to read and have intellect and knowledge to then exhibit uh, an appreciation for that man when if she lived in that country at that time, she would have been murdered as a result of her actions and her abilities and skills. It just really freaked me out. It was weird. Yeah, um, there's a lot going on here. Uh, on the one hand, Viggo Mortensen's character, we don't really exactly learn what his beliefs are to a certain extent. Just by the whole movie, we get a, a, a fairly good picture of what he believes, but he never like declares that he's like a socialist or a communist or whatever. Uh, we learn that his children, at, at least one of them is, for sure, a communist. Um, and so you assume that they're picking up a lot of his beliefs, because at one point, one of the little kids kind of explains what fascism is and basically parrots what the father had said earlier. Well, we don't hear what the father says, but one of the characters says that you're just repeating what dad says. Um, so is this little girl, it seemed to be like this kind of synthesis of a kind of the socialist ideal with her obsession with morbidity and death and not so much, you know, like having skulls on your wall when you're like a teenager and you're rebelling and you're just depressed all the time or what have you. I mean, this kid's way too young to be doing that at the, that point. But, um, yeah, the, the, the idea that um, she'd be exhibiting features that would have gotten her killed in Pol Pot's Cambodia, um, at, the, at the same time kind of, I mean, she's got the pictures on, his wall, on her wall, so you don't generally put things on your wall of things you dislike. Um, but at the same time, the, the father doesn't really make a judgment about it. He just says, Pol Pot, or no, he goes, what? And he looks at the pictures, and then the kid says, Pol Pot. And he's like, eh, okay, or whatever, and then he leaves. He doesn't really make a judgment on it. Um, I think that would have been a good teaching moment for a, for a father to talk about Pol Pot with the child, but he passed on that at that point. I don't know whether he condones it or not, but by not addressing it, he kind of condones it. Oh, positive obligations, Robert. Positive obligations. Well, well, when you when you have children, you are accepting a contract. An implicit to, implicit contract. Yeah, it's an implicit contract. You you create them that person, you bring them into the world. You are accepting responsibility. In my view, I mean, I know Rothbard disagrees with me, but you, you're you're bringing someone into the world that has no choice in the in the matter. So you you have an implicit contract to, and you want to anyway. You you don't even this isn't even super necessary because parents want just inherently 
They want to see their DNA be replicated and be, succeed. It's a, it's a validation of their choices and themselves and their DNA. So he has an incentive already, beyond any philosophical or morality concerns, to want to educate the child as best he knows, to prepare the child as best for the world as he knows, to warn the child of the dangers of horrific ideologies like those espoused at Pol Pot. Right, but as we proceed within the film, which I'm sure we're going to do, we see more and more examples of the father actually being a communist and being supportive of these ideas, which again is, is very contradictory to uh, as well-read and, and well-intellectually-driven um, you know, that they are. Well, the, the socialism has a fair intellectual cover in the world's universities right now. I, I would argue that you. that is the prevailing wisdom. I will grant you that, yes. But it's under the guise of things that sound good or right. seem nice, but they fail to see the consequences of the actions and they look for the seen results of whatever the name of the bill is or whatever the affected... Uh, positively affected party is they disregard the costs or the negative consequences or the unseen consequences or the potential that could have been that's totally pushed pushed to the wayside. Agreed. They tend to believe, or at least they, t they seem to believe, that there is this magic money pile and that it should just be distributed in a better way to the things that I think need money as opposed to what other people think need money. I don't think they take into account the the whole idea that the fact that there is a money pile, that there shouldn't be a money pile in the first place. Or that they have no they, moral right to spend are, other people's money. Right, but, but if they are viewing something as a money pile, they look at it as a fixed sum that needs to be distribu distributed differently versus a way to make the pie bigger. Like, it doesn't matter... Uh, what the arbitrary line of poverty is, if more people are able to have water and have food and have shelter, you know, it shouldn't matter what the income disparity is between people. If all boats are rising, and even if they're rising at different rates, the fact that all boats have risen should be the important point. Not that, well, it, they grew faster than me, therefore they're bad. <laughs> no, it should be absolutely quality of life. Absolutely should be the metric, not some arbitrary line of, well, he makes $22,000 a year and he makes $47,000 a year. It doesn't, yeah, none of that makes any sense. It's all, it's a constantly shifting goalpost. Right, and, and more and more percentage of the population have been risen above actual poverty, like improving living standards since uh, the 1800s than throughout all of human history. Like, it's almost an exponential graph, the quality of life and the percentage of people who have achieved it. Thus, you know, the reduction in poverty. Like, the whole point I'm trying to make is that more people are able to live now at a higher level of, of living, higher standard of living, than in all history. Correct. And the fact that there's like some idiotic war on poverty when there will always be poverty as long as you always define certain percentage of people as being poor. 
<laughs> means that you can never win this war of yours. Yeah, which yeah. just you, just a justification for more cash to grab. If you break everything into quintiles, like twenty percent segments, well, there's always going to be a lower twenty percent, a middle lower, and a dead middle, and a middle upper, and an upper. There's always going to be five segments. So even if everyone's, you know, even if the low segment made a million dollars a year, and then top segment made a billion dollars a year, a year, well, guess what? You're still in the lowest 20% if you make $5 million a year. <laughs> yeah, you could be living in, you know, 12 mansions, but if your neighbor has 15 mansions, you, you're you upset about it. All right, so let's get back to the movie. We're, we're, we've, we've, we've finished about two scenes. So here, moving, let's keep it going here. Moving on. Uh, the next scene is a hand-to-hand combat training scene where the father has the kids out training and uh, they're practicing with little sticks and they're trying to kill each other. Literally, that's what he says. You know, he knows you're not actually trying to actually stab the person to death, but the kids do actually stab each other a little bit. And he's like, well, you should have dodged better or whatever. Do you have any issues with this scene whatsoever? No, no issues whatsoever. I think that you need to practice as if it's game time. Otherwise, you're going to run... the plays at a slower speed. Uh, if you're actually in the situation, you might not go through with the uh, full power that you would otherwise. So I'm I'm totally fine with this. Okay. Okay. Next scene. Uh, they are is the scene you were talking about earlier. They're reading by campfire light, and everybody's doing their studies. And it's shown that the kids are super advanced. Like the one girl is reading up on like Planck's law and high, high level, like mathematics and that sort of thing and physics. Um, and then they start into this, uh, family jam session. So it's, you see that everybody's super intelligent and you're seeing that everybody is multi-talented. Everybody's playing like instruments. Um, then the next day, uh, they're doing some running and then, Dad's going to go into town. And one thing I liked was that I I forget what the boy said, but the oldest boy, but the girl admonishes the oldest boy not to speak to her as if she's an inferior, which is kind of cool. And then they say, repeat some of the things that the father had said, like Americans are undereducated and overmedicated. Probably. Um, Which I don't have an issue with. Do you, Daniel? No, I think that's probably true. I, I, I think that any time you have a monopoly on a school system, that uh, the quality of that education is made very low. And any time you have a pharmaceutical industry that is uh, highly regulated, uh, even a medical industry, where the answer is you need this drug, you need that drug, then, yeah, over-medicated and undereducated for sure. And not to mention the um, the socialized medical system where your your incentive isn't necessarily to take better care of yourself. You don't necessarily making the best possible choices for yourself if you don't actually have to pay for it yourself. So right, if you're the counting incentive, on this the incentive is to bitch and moan about how you don't have coverage. Right. And and try to get coverage even for uh, you know a pre existing condition that is a result of some not always, but sometimes a uh, preventable thing. You know, being out of shape, overeating not exercising, those types of issues. Right. When you're not actually having to pay the costs 
you're far more likely to let your body go to shit. Not for everybody, but you're more likely to if you don't actually have to pay the cost and the consequences of those choices. So they, um, they pile, the, the dad and the older son, they go into the, they pile into the bus, which they call Steve, and they drive Steve to like a local store, which is kind of like an all-in-one general store out in the middle of nowhere. So there's like a bar, like a restaurant. You can get your mail there. You can buy gas, and you can make phone calls and buy some other things probably. Um, they're walking into the store, and they run into some girls. And the oldest boy, Bo, doesn't know what to do. He kind of acts weird. And the dad is like, hey, we got time. Go talk to those girls. And he's like, Why? so I can ask her what she thinks about the working people creating an armed revolution against the exploiting classes and their state structures. Um, so right off the bat, this guy's total commie. <laughs> I mean, whenever you hear working people, armed revolution, exploiting classes, you think communism. Um, so he's like, you know, I, I don't know how to interact with other human beings. All I know is this, you know, Marxist ideology and philosophy and things written down in books. I wouldn't know how to really talk to these girls, or I don't have really have an interest in talking to them unless it's about you know really high-level stuff, even though I would argue that Marxism isn't exactly the most high-level stuff. But um, What is in, then, our, in our universities? Right, in our universities. So he's kind of saying that you know he would be speaking a different language to these girls, so it's not really – it's kind of pointless. Um, right, but he was certainly socially awkward in that situation as well. Like he froze, you know, and the girl yeah. tried to talk to him, and he was just like, uh, uh, uh. right, right. And later on, he kind of blames that on his dad, saying that he's like this freak that doesn't know anything about anything because he's been sheltered his whole life in this. Unless it's out of world. a book, which was right, the uh, of- Robin Williams argument to Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. Oh yeah, that's right. What does the Sistine Chapel smell like or something? Right. Um, so anyway, back to the movie. Uh, ben, the father, he replies and says, Marxists can be just as genocidal as capitalists. And then his son replies, I'm a Maoist. And he gets into the differences between like Trotskyites and Leninists and Stalinists and all that kind of crap. Um all right, so let's stick but on this point for a minute because I want to I want to try to talk through these because there apparently is a distinction between them. Because if I remember, he says, uh, Vigo says to him, uh, "Are you are you a Trotsky Trotskyite now, or or something like that?" And he goes, "Only a Marxist would say I'm a Trotskyite. I'm a Trotskyist, or I was a Trotskyist, and now I'm a Maoist." Like yeah, that sounds about right. About the ite or the ist, and one of them was uh, defamatory towards whatever he used to be, and one of them was appropriate for whatever he used to be, but it didn't matter because now he's a Maoist. Right, I think, yeah. So he's saying that Trotskyite was a detracting term used by opponents. Right, so tro- Trotskyist was the legitimate term, but he's no longer a Trotsky, Trotskyist anyway, so now he's a Maoist. And it's so weird to have the entire movie be about these super intelligent kids and not be aware of the tens of millions, maybe hundred million people that Mal killed. 
as a direct result not of, of his policies, not just not just people that happen to die because China has a lot of people in it, and he ruled for a long time, but actually murdered or died from horrific economic policies. Yeah. So can you do you have an understanding of what those terms Leninist, Marxist, Trotskyist, or Ike and Maoist? What is the differentiating factor between these things? Do you know? Well, my brief answer would just be that those were different philosophies, slightly different philosophy, you know, forms of authoritarian communism espoused by these different leaders, obviously, hence their names. But I don't know the exact differences, no. Um, to me, communism is such a horrific ideology. This collective, you know, the individual doesn't matter, so we can go ahead and murder them. Um, that kind of individual, you know, that is just such a horrific thing to me um, because all we are is individuals and we have self-ownership. So anyone that comes around and says, you know, you don't matter, we can just murder you. We can actually, and this is actually what happened is in some parts of China, like children, if they didn't like the principal or whatever, or the teacher, they would go to the school and pull the principal out roast him like barbecue style like on the lawn on the front lawn and then they'd all eat them like cannibal style i mean string them up like you know slabs of beef and I mean, you could read the articles they're horrific and that's that's just a, a, a tiny tiny little slab of what happened I mean, it's such a it's such an insane ideology that i don't know if it's worth differentiating between them i mean maybe it's best if i become super educated about it but at the same time, like we've talked about in the past, their, their, their answer is violence and statism. So what else do I need to know? Yeah, certainly the uh, means do not, like the ends don't justify the means. The means are horrible. And so, yeah, we were talking on the pre-call, like, do we need to actually be open to everyone's opinions? Like, is that, or, or is that just a nice thing to say? Because if you know that somebody is going to utilize violence to accomplish their, their ends, then their philosophy probably is not worth supporting. Like, if, if their justification is that, you know, somebody is evil uh, by their definition or by their skewed definition, and therefore violence is okay. Sort of like this uh, whole punching Nazis thing is now a thing and seems to be supported by many on the left. Right. All you have to do is call a guy a racist, and, and, and then, then you any, any, any level of violence is just perfectly fine and, in fact, celebrated. That this, this guy who went out and punched this guy just because he didn't agree with what he was saying, so he initiated violence against the guy just because he didn't like what he was saying. And now he's celebrated as some sort of hero. Right, it's there's disgusting. songs about him. There's memes all over the Internet about he's Captain America or Indiana Jones. And I'm sure it will incite even more people to commit aggressive acts of violence against people they disagree with. Yeah, we've seen the left go from, you know, actively, you know, shouting down any kind of opposing viewpoint. And it seems to be that more and more they're getting more and more comfortable with just out and out violently attacking people that they disagree with. So I don't want to collectivize the people, but this person was obviously a leftist. 
And based on the current or the recent protests and violence at the um, you know inauguration rallies or inauguration protests, uh, it sure seems they're getting more and more comfortable <laughs> with with not just shouting you down but violently attacking you. Yeah, I have this picture in my head of when we were left-leaning that it was more of the hippie kumbaya style, you know, freedom of speech, uh, nonviolent protest, like civil disobedience style. And now yeah. it's an aggressive, like, shouting down, you don't matter because you're this race or this gender, and yet somehow they consider gender not actually a thing. <laughs> so it's totally contradictory. Oh, yeah. Uh, but now they're imposing violence upon people. And little do they know that that's the whole point of a state apparatus is to impose violence on others to achieve a greater good, which is a very Maoist, Stalinist, Marxist, Leninist, communist thing. Yeah, and it was just the one guy so far. I mean, there's been multiple instances of violence in these protests and whatever, but this one instance by this one guy it's turning into a memes and it's getting celebrated and propagated around. So it's obviously a bunch of people who have no issue with it, who in fact enjoy it. I mean, if they're, they're making him out to be like some sort of a hero for violently attacking somebody whose views they don't agree with. Right. Uh, and, and this, this is a bit unsubstantiated, but uh, apparently after punching, uh, I think the guy's name is Richard Spencer and he's accused of being a Nazi or a white nationalist. And I'm sure he's not, like, the greatest guy in the world. But he was giving an interview, and then out of the blue, some guy, like, punches him in the side of the head and then runs away. Well, another person followed him on video, had a brief confrontation with him, pulled his mask down, and got a, a split-second view of his face. And then the Internet went to work, identified the As guy, it does. <laughs> doxed him, you know, identified who he is, and, and I, I believe this with, you know, a high level of certainty they got the right guy. But apparently he's a uh, guy who lives in and around Washington, D.C. He is in his 60s. He is a uh, guy who's into um, BDSM as a submissive. He hires women to berate him and uh, put a dog collar on him and, and say terrible things to him poop on him and make him eat the poop. Uh, so it's literally a shit-eating guy who committed this act of aggressive violence against somebody who, you know, like I said, not, probably not most the, save, the most savory person in the world, but he is now a folk hero. You know, he's, he has songs written about him. There are memes about him being Captain America or Indiana Jones punching Nazis and all the people on the left. And I say that you know, a little bit loosely, like not everyone, but a bunch of people on the left now are saying, hey, when is it okay to punch a Nazi? Anytime taco time. Like, they're all about it. They're like, this is the greatest thing ever. Now, anyone we disagree with is fair game for aggressive assault. Yeah. And it's super scary if, if this kind of trend continues. Because that's, that's the line, right? I mean, you can disagree with someone as much as you want, but when you get things physical, you take it physical, that's, that's where you turn into the thug and the bully. And just, I mean, it's one thing to whine about safe spaces and 
shout somebody else down, which is kind of disgusting behavior for someone that supposedly enjoys free speech. But when you get it physical, that's where I can, I can no longer support you. <laughs> so, hey, let's get back to this movie, unless you got a couple more things to say about that, Daniel. No, we can move on with the movie. I'm sure things will come up. Oh, yeah. Okay, so there's one more contradiction here. As they're going to the store, uh, Ben, Viggo Mortensen's character, he pulls out all these homemade goods, like birdhouses and that sort of a thing, like handmade things out of wood that they've carved or whatever you built or constructed, that they're dropping off so that the guy, the owner of the store, can sell them, like on a consignment basis. And he had sold all the stuff previously, so they're getting another load. So he's an entrepreneur. This family, like, they're supporting themselves by selling these goods. So he's a capitalist, and yet, so not a capitalist. So that's just another, another contradiction there. Um, from what he can tell, they weren't, like, you know, on, like, the dole or any kind of, like, government assistance. That's not like they were going to pick up their welfare check. They were going to sell the goods that they had made themselves. Yeah, I wonder if this is a one of those things where they're oppressed by the state of the whatever the state of nature is, whatever the current situation is. Like they need Daniel, money. you're getting really quiet. I don't know what's going on, but you keep getting quieter and quieter. All right, is this better? Yeah, much better. All right, crank can you repeat that, yourself what you just said? Crank that shit up, motherfucker! Step up to the mic. Don't be scared. I'm not scared. So. This situation where he's selling birdhouses in a capitalist, entrepreneurial fashion, I wonder if, if in his mind, the justification is the um, the old trope of, well, nature is oppressing me, and because I live in an environment where money is nece- a necessity, I need to somehow get money to, you know, not be as oppressed by capitalism. Like, capitalism is, is, a, is being enforced upon me, and I need money to pay my property taxes or to buy property or to buy certain provisions from a store. And therefore, uh, I need to be pragmatic and, you know, participate begrudgingly. It should be just provided to me based on my need, right? Right. But because that system's not yet in place, I need to do something that's going to get me some money. Yeah, that, there may be a little bit of that, uh, maybe more so in the kids. I think the dad maybe is a little bit more of a realist, although, you know, obviously with raising a bunch of socialist kids, it's hard to say that he didn't rub off on them a lot. Um, we don't get that in the movie. It's not explicitly said. Um, he doesn't make any kind of comment when he's selling his birdhouses. Because, um, you know, the plot's got to move on. It can't all just be <laughs> spousing one ideological phrase after the next. Um right, well- I know we're going to get to this um, point soon, but I think based on what you've been saying so far that you're giving Vigo a fair amount of benefit of the doubt. Well, yes, he's – well, okay, so he's, he's a guy who has a certain view of the world, and based on what we see in the movie, he seems to be a dad who deeply cares about his children, wants to raise them the best he knows how. He doesn't want to just sit there and indoctrinate them. I mean, he's not like he's letting they're reading all kinds of different shit, right? But it's it's his reading list. He's given them. True, but it's not like communism 101, 102, 103, 104, 105, and then done. 
They're reading all kinds of different things. And not only are they just reading them, but they are analyzing them and not just, you know, regurgitating. That was a strong point made in the movie. So and even at one point, we'll get to this later on, but at one point, um, you know, when they're celebrating Noam Chomsky Day and the, the middle son complains and says, why can't we, you know, celebrate Christmas like the rest of us, like the rest of the world? And Vigo's like, well, what's your argument? Maybe if you present your argument in a clear fashion, and you'll convince us, and maybe we'll change our minds. So I don't, I don't see this guy as some sort of like totalitarian dictator guy. Is that what you see? Well, you know that that situation was actually kind of interesting to me because I think that um, in a way, how he presented the opportunity to the child was rather confrontational. Like, okay, you don't agree, then give us your argument right now, right here, right now. And if you yeah, don't have well, it right now, then, then you're done. You know, like, he, didn't, he didn't start that, though. He didn't right. start that conversation. But it also the son brought it up. It wasn't like a um, – it was presented as an open dialogue, but I don't think it actually was. I think it was it – was, uh, Wait a minute. If, you do, if he had started making his argument about why they should celebrate Christmas, you don't think he would have listened to it? I don't think the the kid was necessarily prepared to discuss it, and so he tried to force the kid to do it. Right. He he offered it. He offered the the floor because the kid desired that he took the floor. The kid took the floor. Right, but his and the father was like, "Okay, well, what's your argument?" Saying, I, I think that's a perfectly thing, normal thing to do in any conversation to say if someone makes a claim that we should do a thing, to ask what their argument is for doing that thing. All right, I'll, I'll put it this way. The kid was bluffing, and the, the dad called him on it. Okay, so you think it was, the dad was being disingenuous because he that's knew how, the kid was bluffing? Well, that's how I read it initially, because I think he knew that the kid wasn't prepared to actually you know, support his argument. But I think given enough time, the kid could have had something more substantial to say. But I think by putting him on the spot, he wasn't ready. And Possibly, but... But Dan, he's been, he was raising his kids the whole time. This whole movie has been about him raising these kids to be critical thinkers and to, you know, support their arguments and to analyze things. Right. And, and, and out of the six kids, this was definitely the one who was always uh, sort of the not, not going along with programs as much as the other ones. Right. He is the odd man out. Right. And, and, get, and moving ahead, yeah, we will find he's the one that wants to stay and live with the grandparents and stuff, yeah. Right, but even when they're climbing the mountain, you know, he, he runs into a situation where he's not listening to his dad and, and, and hurts himself, and his dad's like, well, who's going to help you? Yeah. Right, and well, and this, okay, we can get into that. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. But, oh, all right, let's go um, back. Let's go back. Okay, but this is the guy, yeah, he's this is the kid that blames the dad for his mom's death. He's the one that is upset about his mom dying and thinks his father should have done more to help her. That is the main source of conflict between them. And right, so, the, the, the complaint about Noam Chomsky Day and wanting to stay and live with the grandparents is all because of that. Right, okay. okay. So there's anyway. an underlying psychological difference like or a, a motivation to have conflict like he yes he has and even the, the father doesn't necessarily disagree with him right so he has a beef because he thinks his dad is responsible for his mother's death and so he's going to exhibit that beef however he can 
Right. At most opportunities, he makes his displeasure known. He doesn't necessarily voice it always that it's about the mother, but he voices his displeasure. <laughs> so I thought that was fairly realistic in that you don't necessarily always say the exact things you mean to say, but you exhibit a certain level of emotional frustration and you know emotion regardless of what you're actually saying. That's a very human thing. Okay, let's get back to the movie because we're uh, at this rate we're going to be like a five-hour episode. Um, at the store, remember, we were at the store, and the dad was selling these homemade goods. So the son goes in, and he gets mail from all these universities that it applied to. And these are like Harvard, Yale, Brown, MIT, like super high-level stuff. And it's all, you know, you've been accepted. Yeah, yeah, good for you. Um, and then we'll get more into that later. Then the dad calls uh, sister of the wife, finds out that his wife has killed herself because she is bipolar or, or uh, manic depressive and um, she has committed suicide. Um, then they all go home and the next scene is he's like grieving under a waterfall and then he goes in and he tells all his kids and everybody acts as you would expect. Everybody's crying and really upset. And the middle boy picks up a knife and goes to stab his father because he feels that his father has betrayed the family and let everybody down by either allowing this to happen or helped it to happen or didn't do enough to prevent it. Um, so uh, the next scene is dad calling grandfather. Or let's see. Uh, yeah, I think it is the next scene. Um, who tells him that not only is he not welcome at the funeral, but that he will have him arrested if he shows up at the funeral. Now, to me, I thought this was horrific. The fact that you would, regardless of how you feel about your family, you know, your in-laws, the idea that you would involve the state thug enforcers to kidnap a guy because he wants to grieve for his wife, at some sort of ceremony. Uh, what did you uh, think about that scene, Daniel? I definitely thought that was horrific. And I'll grant, you know, he was the father and it was his only child and he wasn't super uh, enamored with this Ben Vigo character. Right. But to deny the husband of the wife and the six children attendance of the funeral, and we haven't gotten to the to the uh, fact that there was a, a will that had certain requests that were totally being ignored by the father. Right. So, it, yeah, it, it was it was terrible. And, and to use the, the state as a bludgeon, as a weapon, I think is terrible as well. And, and I think that's all too common in, in situations, you know? Right. Like, yeah, you, you disagree with somebody, so you're going to call the cops. Right. And, and what's that called? Like swatting? Uh, like people will be like gaming against each other, and then they'll SWAT the other person. And uh, yeah, I, I yeah. hardly want to. You'll have a whole SWAT team outside your house, and then they'll break in and shove guns in everybody's faces, and to, just to find out that they're just playing a video game, and that somebody was watching you on Twitch, and they and they didn't like you for some or whatever reason. So they're gonna, yeah, it's it's horrific. Yeah, and if it wasn't clear enough, I mean. 
Mao killed, you know, anywhere between 60 to 100 million people. And that's not even half of the number of people killed by their own governments, not including warfare. Uh, so, you know, the state is a killing machine. That's what it is. It's a violence machine. It's, it's it all is. about escalation and compliance. That's right. Okay, so then the next scene is they're all sitting down to dinner, and they're upset that they're not being allowed to go to the funeral. So they're discussing that. Um, the oldest son argues that the sense of entitlement from the grandparents is wrong, that they have any right to say what they can and cannot do. The youngest boy comes out and says that the rest of the grandparents' tribe are fascist capitalists. And then the boy goes on to say, he goes on to define what a fascist capitalist is because the, the daughter says, you don't even know what a fascist capitalist is. You're just repeating what dad says. And so he says, fascist, violent nationalist militant supported by big business and their totalitarian single-party dictators. What do you think of that definition, Daniel? You know, not not bad. I think that it's a, a straw man argument against capitalism, uh, which is what Marx was basically guilty of in his treatise in Das Kapital, where mm-hmm. he would define capitalism in two different ways and attack the one that was actually incorrect, but in doing so made him sound more correct in his philosophy. And so I, you know, exactly this, like saying that capitalism is in any way related to fascism or aggression or violence when capitalism truly is the antithesis of that. Like it is the absence of violence. It is voluntary interactions. It is right. It is. It is what spontaneously choose. happens when you leave people alone. What, that's what it is. Right. You choose to trade with me. I choose to trade with you. That's all capitalism is. And so, yep. you know, not not every outcome is going to be great. Like people are going to go into a trade thinking they will benefit, and whether they do or not is up to you know whether they made a good decision. But the very nature of capitalism, capitalism is not violent. And so that's how it is uh, a confused uh, perception and a straw man against capitalism in this movie and in many ideologies. Right, right. Yeah, it seems like the left continuously gets wrong what capitalism actually is. I think it is a tool of oppression. And I don't understand. I mean, only if you believe that property is theft could you assume that capitalism is some sort of oppression, like you're you're oppressing me by not giving me your sandwich? Uh, it seems like a, just a ridiculous, childish argument to me, but I don't want to, like, just ad hom them. But just, it really does seem that way to me. Okay, so the kids want to go to the funeral, but then the emotional um, question is, if they do go, would they lose their father? And they ask, you know, if we go would we lose you? And Vigo's like, maybe. They might arrest me. They might take me away from you. And then you would go into some sort of, you know, either live with your grandparents or go into some sort of state, uh, you know, state, like, boarding house or whatever. Um, so then there, that. Then the next scene is the mountain climbing scene, which you already talked about a little bit. Uh, the middle boy falls and um, as they're climbing up. 
um, on you know ropes and like real mountain climbing, uh, falls and hurts his arm. And Vigo basically says, you know, there is no cavalry. No one will save you. Uh, the subtext is, you know, you're responsible for yourself. What are you going to do? This is your training. This is how you survive. You are responsible for you. And for me, I really appreciated that message. It's, it's kind of uh, it kind of ignores other strategies in that making friends with people and having people come to help you isn't you know isn't like a bad thing. It is a strategy survival uh, a survival strategy that so saying that there is no cavalry, it's good to be self-sufficient and to be able to take care of yourself, absolutely. But um, being able to develop a network of support isn't necessarily a terrible thing. Just when you use violence to attain that support is where I draw an issue. When it's a voluntary support, I'm all for it. Yeah, I agree. Like That scene was um, actually an example of actual anarchy. I mean, it was, you know, there is no state apparatus in place. There's no 911 to come help you. There's no rescue team that's going to come in a helicopter. you got to figure it out. And I mm-hmm. think that that was also a contradiction in the father's philosophy in that you know, he's very supportive of Chomsky and communism and socialism. Yet at the same time, he's also this uh, rugged individual. Like you need to be able to survive on your own. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird, weird situation there where you would expect. I mean, you see so many the people that are more I don't know, like rugged individualist types are far more likely to be right leaning. I mean, there are like hippie communes around the world um, that do get together and kind of live together and live off the land sort of thing. But, and you got a little bit of a, I got a little bit of a vibe off of that from the family, but I am far more took them as a series. Like if, if this was a movie where you just saw that first scene and then they're training maybe a little bit and then just change it a little bit up to like their preppers or survivalist, you know, type people, I could totally buy that too. You know, instead, I wouldn't necessarily need to have them be like hippies or whatever. Um, you generally see that rugged individualism on the um, on the distrust of government side, the, the right-hand side. You tend to agree with that, Daniel? Yeah, I do. And, and actually, they exhibit that later in the film, a distrust of government and authority. So, again, more contradictions. And um, actually, you know, Mao wrote a couple of, philosophical works about contradictions claiming that everything was a contradiction which is counter to Ayn Rand's philosophy that contradictions cannot exist and so that might be an interesting point to discuss on part two of Captain Fantastic we need to wind this one down I have been summoned and Uh uh, we've been going just about an hour so I think that's enough for this podcast Uh, so not to cut uh, this movie short, I think that we will be able to move on with part two of this uh, in the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. So let's start winding this down. We've probably got another minute or two that uh, I will not be yelled at, and so we can close this one out. All right. Well, we got about 20 minutes into the movie, 15 minutes into the movie. 
uh, out of about a two-hour movie. Um, we got through page one of my notes, so good for us. But yeah, there's so much more to discuss. Um, it's it's really dense, really good stuff, and the ending kind of uh, kind of ruins the whole thing a little bit. We'll see. Um, I don't. I I do recommend. In the meantime, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie, go out and check it out. Um, and come back and join us for part two and maybe part three. Who knows how much time we're going to have for part two? We'll see. But it's a lot to get through, and um, yeah, it's going to take some time. Indeed, sir. So this has been the actual Anarchy Podcast. This is the second of uh, our podcast under the new name. Previous name was the Rebrowth Bar Podcast. If you wish to go back and view any or listen to any of our previous 40 episodes, feel free to do so. Uh, We would appreciate that. But uh, even better than that is go to our website, actualanarchy.com or readrothbar.com. Click on any of the supporting Amazon links, readit4.me, Liberty Classroom, or tip jar pages. We have a Patreon. We've got YouTube. We've got all sorts of ways where you can consume our content or Murray Rothbard's content and support us. Uh, give us the, even comments or uh, challenges, you know, like ask us a question. We'll answer it. I mean, we got lots of answers. But uh, if we don't have one, we will definitely let you know. We'll say, oh, you know what, that's one of the things I don't know. Uh, I'll research it or I'll say, you know, it's probably best left up to the market, voluntary choices, all of that. Um, Actually, that's my scapegoat. You know, if if I don't have an answer, I can say, well, I'm sure that the voluntary uh, associations will solve that in some way. The free market will solve that in some way. So, spoiler alert, that'll be my answer if I don't actually have an answer. But I still think it's legitimate. Well, it is legitimate because predicting the future is is uh, impossible. Um, I was listening to, I think, a part of the problem episode where they were discussing, you know, predicting the future. Like the question was, you know, back in the day, you know, if we get rid of slavery, how will we pick cotton? And if you had told them at the time, well, the answer is going to be this magical machine that is going to run on dead dinosaur juice. You would, uh, you look at them like they're a crazy person, but that's what we do. So just the idea that, you know, there will be innovations that will come from other fields and just be unforeseen that will totally change the way we do things. And no one person could possibly predict any of that. And the market and people interacting voluntarily and being dynamic and innovative and being rewarded for their efforts by being able to not get stolen from and being rewarded for that um, is the best way to move forward with humanity. Well said, Robert, and a, and a good way to close this episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This has been Captain Fantastic Part 1. We will be right back at you in the next episode with Part 2, and who knows, if we don't get through that, maybe there's a Part 3. So do check out actualanarchy.com, which will right now redirect to readrothbar.com, where you can see books, lectures, articles, and this podcast. Uh, readrothbar.com. So thank you for joining us, folks, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye.
the chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do